Greetings, loyal goblins. We're back with the Esoteric Book Club podcast, coming to you from the deep woods of West Virginia. Tonight we're talking about Bigfoot, Time Bubbles, and Saxon Sorcery and Magic. So strap in, it's about to get weird. This month's articles come from an unlikely source. The Backwoodsman Magazine, Muzzleloading Woods Lore, Survival, History, Homesteading, Self-Reliance, and Primitive Living Skills. These two articles come from the March and April 2020 release, Volume 41, Number 2, so it won't necessarily be available on newsstands unless it's a back issue at this point. So let's jump right in. The first article is entitled, Casting Sasquatch Footprints. The author admits that he personally has never found a, a Sasquatch footprint, but he still carries around a casting kit just in case. According to the BFRO, the Bigfoot Field Research Office, the FBI declassified a file in 2017 that chronicles 5,200 sightings all the way from Washington State down to Florida. The author posits that woodsmen are better acclimated to the forest, and therefore they spend more time there, and they're more likely to find a footprint. To prepare for the eventuality of finding a Bigfoot footprint, the author goes into three different materials that are used for casting. Plaster of Paris, which is the most common and most frequently used, Dental stone, which has very similar properties, is denser and typically costs just a little bit more than regular plaster of Paris. And liquid silicone, which is used by law enforcement because it flows a bit better and gets into small cracks. It has a better retention of things such as dermal ridges, which are similar to fingerprints, but on feet. Once you've figured out what type of casting material you're going to use, you need to have a way to transport it and all the other materials necessary to get it processed. Basically, wrap it up in a plastic bag, use a 3 mil or greater Ziploc bag, and carry a bottle of water with you. Now the suggestion that the author made that I've not heard before, which actually makes a lot of sense, is to carry a travel-sized can of hairspray. Why would you want this, you might be asking. It's the first question I had, obviously. And the idea is that you use the hairspray to spray the, the lining area of the footprint itself. And this will prevent the plaster from sticking to small debris, such as dirt, sticks, leaves. That way, it's a lot easier for you to clean the footprint when you're done. And it's an inexpensive method to prepare it this way. So, you found a footprint. You're all excited and ready to start casting right away so that you have proof of what you found. Wrong. You do not want to immediately start casting this. The first thing that you want to do, according to the author, is take photographs. If the plaster cast does not turn out, and you damage the footprint in the process of making this cast, you want to have some sort of evidence remaining, just in case. It also gives you further evidence of the surroundings, the terrain, the trail itself that it was found on, and other incidental pieces of evidence that you may otherwise have missed. So you've taken photos and video and logged the GPS coordinates. Now it's time to actually start casting this footprint. The first thing you want to do is not necessarily make the mixture. What you want to do is build up a barrier or a wall around the footprint so that when the plaster overflows the actual impression itself, you still have a way to get depth to the casting. Only once you have this barrier built is when you want to actually start mixing the plaster. You get it all together, you mix it in that plastic bag that you carry with you, and you get it to a consistency where it's a thin slurry. You want to give it plenty of time to set up, so as soon as you get this mixed properly, you want to very gently start pouring it into the footprint. 
You want to pour it from one end to another to make sure that the entire track gets filled. Once it's like that, you just let it sit for half an hour. Do not touch it. You want to make sure that this has started to solidify before you even make an attempt to pull this from the ground. Once the first half hour has elapsed, you want to very, very carefully start to pry this track from the earth. When you do, flip it over so the track is facing upward, and what was originally the top is now the bottom. This is going to give portions of the cast that were not originally exposed to the air a chance to begin to dry and solidify. After a few minutes, you can wrap this up in newspaper and begin to transport it home. Once you have it there, you can actually clean the footprint from other debris that may have accidentally been stuck to it with a toothbrush or a soft bristle paintbrush. Congratulations, you now have your own Sasquatch footprint. While this article was informative in itself and entertaining, what really surprised me was the credentials of the author of this article. These weren't listed until the end, and this is what I found the most fascinating. The author's name is Craig Messner. He's a former military police officer, 30-plus year veteran, New York Police Department sergeant. He has a Master's of Science in Criminal Justice, and he's a former Department of Homeland Security instructor and FBI-certified latent print technician. This guy isn't just someone who hunts Bigfoot for recreation. He knows exactly how to cast prints and gain evidence from tracks. He is an expert with many, many years of experience. And that's what really stands out to me about this article. This is not some layman. This is a professional lawman who is providing this information to us. In my opinion, this article is worth the cost of the magazine by itself. But wait, there's more. Now, we get to talk about time bubbles. The author of the next article goes only by the name Bob C., and before I go into it, I want to preface that this article is not the best written, but it does lend credence to the idea that this is a first-hand account and a series of understandings and beliefs held by an individual who is not an expert in the field. This is an average guy who's writing in with his understandings, beliefs, and everything involved in these experiences that he has had throughout his lifetime. So without further ado, I present to you the rest of the story about time holes. What the author proposes is that there are holes in time that float through physical matter in the way that bubbles float on the surface of the sea. They don't really have any control over their movement or where they end up. They just sort of flow on the current, and that's why they show up at random and create random events. Now, some of these bubbles are one way. You can look through them, but the things on the other side can't look back. Some time bubbles are two-way, which means that entities on both sides of this time paradox are able to interact with each other simultaneously. Furthermore, if these bubbles are large enough, they can actually serve as doorways, transporting physical material from one point in time to another. The author uses this basic premise to explain everything from Grandma's missing sewing shears all the way to planes disappearing in the Bermuda Triangle. At one point, he even philosophizes on the concept of time itself. He says that without the Earth circling the Sun, there would not be a year. And without the Earth rotating, we wouldn't have a day and night cycle. When you think of it like that, 
it's pretty interesting how this concept of time is really just a manifestation of how we interact with the universe around us. When it's broken down to its material components in this way, we see that time is ultimately arbitrary. When viewed in this light, the barrier between space and time suddenly becomes very, very thin. But this is all just background information that the author uses to explain his first-hand accounts. So let's take a look at one of these accounts. This is just one of the three that he has listed in the article, and this is the one that I find the most interesting of all of them. When he was a child, he was in study hall in school one day. He, along with a bunch of other students and the teacher of the classroom, saw a luminous fog cover the third-story classroom window of his schoolhouse. When it fell away, the buildings that they could see outside were replaced with cabins and horse-drawn carriages. He said it was as if he were looking at his town as it existed 100 years in the past. After a few minutes, the windows were obscured again by this luminous fog. When the fog cleared, his town was back to normal. This was not an isolated event that happened to an individual. It involved multiple people of various ages. While it doesn't prove that the story was true, it does help add a little veracity to the account. Like I said, this is just one of the three stories that are in this article. The other one includes a pair of ghosts at the top of the stairs, and the third may or may not include a dinosaur. I'll let you discover that one on your own. If you would like to read all of these articles, I'll post a link in the description below. Now, hopefully if I edited this correctly, you can't really tell that there's a break in the action. In fact, I had most of this recorded, and I backed out of the program and accidentally deleted, well, pretty much everything about this book. So without further ado, let's try this again. For the second time tonight, I present to you a handbook of Saxon sorcery and magic, wordworking, runecraft, divination, and wart cunning by Alaric Albertson, published by Llewellyn. This is a hefty book weighing in at 346 pages and three appendices. But bigger doesn't always mean better. In this case, it actually means more variety. Alaric tackles many topics on Saxon sorcery, and he actually begins all the way at the beginning with the nature of magic, the tools necessary, and the alchemical components used in its process. At its very foundation, Saxon sorcery is composed of nine separate aspects of power. You'll notice that nine is a recurring number. It's a number of power in Saxon mythology and belief systems. Odin himself hung from the world tree for nine days in order to gain the knowledge of the runes. There is a famous poem called the Nine Herbs Charm from Saxon England. And as such, Alaric is using that recurring number to break down the aspects of magic. Those nine aspects are the leech, or body, huya, or thoughts, vila, or willpower, vod, inspiration, mode, self-identity, Mayor, spiritual strength, Hama, the astral body, Muna, or memory and emotions, and the Fetch, who is basically a guardian spirit. Those of you who have done research into witchcraft may have noticed that the Fetch is the predecessor to the witch's familiar. All nine of these aspects need to be in balance for the sorcerer to gather power, but power by itself is useless without a way to direct it, and that is where the tools come in. 
Most practitioners will eventually gather a selection of tools that they prefer to use for their own working. But here Alaric describes the basic tools necessary for traditional Saxon magic. They include the altar, a wand, a staff, a mortar and pestle, a cauldron, and a sayax, or a Saxon knife. These tools don't seem too much different from modern witchcraft tools, and that's because ultimately they all have a very similar origin. This book primarily covers Anglo-Saxon England, but the Saxons originally came from an area in Germania, commonly around the Rhine River. Because of that location, they had a combination of both heathenry and Celtic beliefs, so you get a lot of spillover between the two groups. Beyond the basic tools, we start to look at the alchemical components that are used in sorcery. Now, this list is way too expansive for me to go into in this podcast, but I am able to give you a basic rundown. You're looking at base material components, the very elements of sorcery itself. You're looking at things such as herbs of various types, mead, and even just basic iron in some form or fashion. Once you have the alchemical components combined with your tools, you can empower them with the nine aspects of natural magic. The next section of the book goes into specific applications, and it begins with the very basic of Futhork. That's right, I said Futhork, not Futhark. Most of us know Futhark as the Germanic and Scandinavian language system commonly known as runes. Futhork, on the other hand, is the very specific Anglo-Saxon variation of that language used in Anglo-Saxon England. As with most alphabets associated with a living language, the Futhork had to adapt to the changing vocalizations used in England with the Angles, Jutes, Picts, and Celts. With all these combined languages, you started to get different vowels and vocalizations that you really needed to create new symbols to represent. As a result, you get a set of runes that is familiar to us, but far more expansive. The section on runes honestly takes up a majority of this handbook. That said, a lark goes into far more detail in this book in one chapter than most singular compositions on the subject. He provides a fully translated copy of the Anglo-Saxon rune poem, he outlines the ways you go about creating your own rune set, and then he does a full detailed transcription of each individual rune and how it's applied to divination. Runes aren't limited to divination, though. You can use them as magical components and, in fact, use them as spells in themselves. There are several ways to do this. But the first thing you have to remember is to be very, very specific in what you are attempting to accomplish using runes. Using qualifying words such as bigger or better are not necessarily specific and could have unintended results. For example, you may be creating a rune to get a better job. But what does a better job actually mean? Does it mean better work satisfaction? Does it mean higher pay? Does it mean that you really just don't like your boss? You have to be specific when you go to create a spell. When you go to create a rune spell, there's three different formats that you can use. Rune staves, bind runes, or what the author refers to as helms or shield runes. Rune staves, as elaborated in this book, are not the same as Icelandic rune staves, which in fact are about 500 years younger than the ones listed in this book. The rune staves described here are essentially creating a sequence of runes in a specific order to achieve a designated result. 
Conversely, bind runes are when you combine one or more rune sigils into a single emblem. The logo for Bluetooth technology is in fact a bind rune once used by Harald Bluetooth, King of Norway. Finally, rune helms or shields are a radial design in which runes are used in repetition to create a desired effect. The most famous one is probably the Egisjalmer, commonly known as the Helm of Awe. As you can tell from listening to this, runes are essentially a written form of magic. The next section of the book goes into vocal magic, known as Galdor. Galdor encompasses a large selection of spoken magic, ranging from single words of power to elaborate epic poetry. The creation of Galdor actually relies heavily on poetic techniques such as rhyme, meter, alliteration, and repetition. This is very much a chapter on how to write the verbal components for your spellcraft. Moving on, we come to the next chapter on wart cunning, which translates into plant knowledge or plant lore. This encompasses both the magical and medicinal uses of a variety of plants. Most of those that are listed in here are specific species, but there's actually two entire families of plant that are heavily documented in their use. The allium family, including garlic, leeks, and onions, are heavily used for curative purposes and protection. Garlic isn't just used for vampires, it's used to protect a household from a wide range of undead. The other plant family listed is Artemisia, which includes the plants wormwood and mugwort. These are either ingested or burned to help those who are either seeking visions or wanting to enhance meditation. This moves us into our next section on Wilung, or Saxon divination. I'm sure there were many forms of divination in use, but the two that are listed here in the book include seething and scrying. I'm sure many of you have already heard about scrying. It's essentially looking at a reflective or semi-reflective surface to allow yourself to get into a meditative trance and start to seek visions. Seething, on the other hand, may not be a term that you are familiar with. It's a process of divination in which you begin with meditative trance and eventually move into astral travel. This is where several of the nine aspects of natural magic come into use, specifically the Hama, or your astral body, and the Fetch, your guardian spirit. Your Hama represents the spiritual presence you have while in astral travel. The Fetch serves as a companion and a guardian while you're in this altered state. Once you've learned the basics of all of these techniques previously listed, that's when you can start getting into the real magic. The last chapters give loose guidelines for the main topics that magic is typically used for. Love, health, and money. Each section has its own basic examples that serve mostly as a guideline for creating your own workings. Once you finish this book, you'll have all the direction you'll need to start your path as a Saxon sorcerer. What I found to be the best takeaway of this book is that it serves as a fantastic primer on rune work in general, not just Anglo-Saxon rune work. All of the principles in this book can be applied to Icelandic, Scandinavian, and Germanic rune work. The rest of the book serves as an excellent snapshot encompassing all of the magical practices in Anglo-Saxon society. If you want a complementary magical practice to go along with heathenry, but you don't want something that is overtly Scandinavian in nature, this book is the place to find it. If you want your own copy, I'll have an affiliate link posted below in the show notes.
That concludes another moon cycle of the Esoteric Book Club. I'm your host, Jason, and until next time, remember, stay weird.